0: Yeah, typically uh, here at Eastgate we we will be preaching through books of the Bible and now currently uh, we've been going through the book of of James but this morning uh, we're going to have a a topical discussion talking about what we just witnessed with the baptism of Indy. Uh, Baptism is an important topic that unfortunately can divide churches. Baptism has formed a central issue of division between a number of denominations and Christians have disagreed about baptism a lot over the years. And so today I don't want it to be a us versus them debate. The aim this morning is to help build understanding to baptism that we may all rejoice together in unity in baptism today. So, despite my best effort, my words are not infallible. I only speak one language and that's bad English. If, if I say something that doesn't sound right or if I say something that doesn't sit right with you, um, then I implore you to come and talk to me If you disagree with what I've said, if you believe that I've misrepresented what you believe, then come talk to me. And as I said, the aim is to help build understanding so that we we all rejoice in baptism today. So let me begin uh, in prayer. Paul, can I just have? Cool. Thank you. Let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, as we open up your word uh, to look to you, uh, you are truth and you have revealed yourself through your word, the Bible, to us. Lord, send your Holy Spirit to help us and guide us in your truth, that we may know you and your will. Help me, Lord, help my words, that I may be speaking your truth in love, and that any falsehood in my speech may fall away and be forgotten. Lord, guide our time together that we may be united as one body under Christ and to give glory to you alone. Amen. So why are we going to be talking about baptism? A few weeks ago, we celebrated with the dedication of Ben and today we baptised Indy. And to some, this might seem confusing. Why do we dedicate some kids but baptise others? Why do we at Eastgate do both? Well, first a bit of a history lesson – Um, back when Eastgate Bible Church formed, there were two main groups coming together looking to establish a new church. And these two groups were out of the Baptist and Presbyterian churches. And when they formed this church, they recognised that they agreed on the most important issues of the church, the deity of Christ and the nature of the Trinity and the means of salvation, among many others, but that they could still be united under Christ despite disagreeing on the specifics of baptism. And we can still disagree on this issue of baptism and enjoy fellowship together. Now, I don't want to say that baptism is unimportant, that we can just ignore it. No, baptism is very important. What we acknowledge is that there is not a simple, clear, bulletproof answer from Scripture and that there is some wiggle room in interpretation and that our interpretation does differ. My aim and prayer this morning is that we can discuss baptism and even though we have different opinions or interpretations, that we can celebrate together. Now my sermon today is not going to be an in-depth lecture comparing the different finer points of the different positions. I'm not even going to try to persuade you that my position is the right one or the best one. I admit that I might be wrong in this. I myself am not convinced 100% beyond all doubt that what I hold is true. In reality I'm about 60/40, but I I do believe that we should be baptizing our kids, but I'm open to the possibility that I could be wrong. After all it's happened once before. Good. Lots of professional respected theologians much smarter than me have debated this in depth and still in our human fallibility, we have not been able to confidently discern the teachings of scripture in this regard. Let me repeat that. There's no clear evidence for or against infant baptism in the scriptures. If learned theologians cannot resolve this debate, what hope do I have to find the solution today? So that's not my goal. I'm not going to convince you because that's not the point. If you would like to get a more uh, in-depth reasoning, I'd recommend to start listening to the debate between R.C. Sproul and Johnny Mac. Um, You can find it pretty easily at Ligonier.com, which is R.C.'s website, or on YouTube. It goes for about two hours, and it's a good starting place. Um, And I strongly encourage you, you, if you're investigating this stuff, to please listen or read to both sides... Um, not just your own position but to understand the counter position so that we can see what we have uh, in common between our beliefs and still be united under Christ. And so Eastgate does not hold to a particular mode of baptism but we do allow for both infant baptism and believer's baptism. Some people will call this pedo-baptist where pedo means child or credo-baptist. I'm not going to use those words today I'm going to stick with infant baptism even though child baptism is probably a, a more correct term but I'm just used to infant baptism, so I'm just going to use. Um, But very simply, those who hold to believers' baptism believe that baptism is reserved for just those who profess a salvation faith in Jesus, one who hold to a creed. Whereas those who hold infant baptism extends baptism to include the children of believers, not just infants, but all children in the household of believers. Typically it would be infants, but also the children in households of new believers as well. And as an infant Baptist, I also believe in baptising of adults. If an adult came to me and said um, they wish to be baptised, I wouldn't turn them away. Sorry, you missed your chance. You're too old. Um, no, of course, I would baptise them. So. so there are two things in common. There's more things in common, but I'm focusing on two things in common between the positions. Um, and so let's start with that. So the first, is that baptism a command? And the second, that baptism doesn't save you. So first, baptism is a command. Matthew 28:18 to20 says this: "And Jesus came and said to them, "All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age." And so we see very clearly, without any doubt, that we are commanded to baptize, to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I believe that we unfortunately neglect this command. We don't take baptism seriously. Of the two ordinances that Christ has given us, communion and baptism, one we do every two weeks, but when was the last time that we spoke about baptism? Why do we have people sitting in churches who profess that Jesus is Lord yet are unbaptized? Why do we delay? Why? The second thing that we have in common is this, though. Is that we don't believe that salvation happens at the moment of baptism. Baptism does not equal salvation. Now, unfortunately, many churches do not believe this point. There are churches in both camps, infant and believers' baptism, that believe differently. They believe that the Holy Spirit will come upon the baptisee during baptism and salvation would occur at that point. They typically look at examples like Matthew three, sixteen to seventeen, which is the baptism of Jesus. And we see Matthew describing baptism and the coming of the Spirit coming at the whole same time. And when Jesus was baptised, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Or they may look at Acts, where Luke records about repentance, forgiveness and washing of sins and baptism together. And so they take that to mean that the two baptism and the receiving of the holy spirit are intrinsically linked and must occur simultaneously we've acts two thirty-eight, and peter said to them repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of jesus christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the holy spirit or acts twenty-two sixteen, and why do you wait rise and be baptized wash away your sins calling on his name i am however unconvinced and believe that position to be unbiblical Firstly, there are many accounts of baptism that doesn't mention the Holy Spirit at all. Take, for example, Acts 8, 34 to 39, where Philip preached to the eunuch and baptised him. There was no mention of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, and more importantly, we have accounts of the Holy Spirit coming before baptism. In Acts chapters 10 and 11, we read the account where Peter met with the Gentile Cornelius. And looking just at chapter 10, verses 44 and 48, while Peter was still saying these things, The Holy Spirit fell on all those who heard the word. And the believers among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. And so we see clearly the separate events of receiving the Holy Spirit and the baptism that followed shortly afterwards. And this is not the only record that we have. We also have another example in Acts chapter 9, verse 17, with the conversion of Saul or Paul. More importantly, though, uh, is Ephesians, 8, Ephesians 2, 8-9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God... Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. How can we say that we can be saved through baptism? Let me read it again, for I cannot summarize it better than this. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Baptism is a work that we do. We are not saved by works. Baptism cannot save us. Salvation is from the Lord alone. It is his choice to save whomever he wants. We cannot be God and save ourselves by being baptised. We cannot be God and save another of our choosing by force or coercion to baptise them to save them. Baptism is a work, and like all works, they cannot earn salvation. The New City Catechism, question 45, says it like this. Is baptism with the water the washing away of sin itself? No. Only the blood of Christ and the renewal of the Holy Spirit can cleanse us from sin. And so we believe that salvation and baptism are two separate events. And these two events may occur very closely, and ideally they should. When someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ, they should be baptised without delay. Baptism isn't reserved for some distinct second stage, something you hold off until you know enough or you have a better understanding. If you recognize your sin and your helpless state and that you cannot do anything to save yourself and that you need a saviour to deal with your sin, if you recognize that Jesus Christ of Nazareth, that he is the son of God and that he died on the cross of Calvary to pay the penalty for your sin to save you, then you should be baptized. So this is hopefully what we can agree on. Firstly, that baptism is a command and that baptism doesn't save you. So so what is baptism then? If baptism is not for salvation, so what does it do? What is its purpose? Now I'm not an expert in Hebrew or Greek. I'm not even an expert in English. But the word baptize or baptism has a number of forms and it involves washing from the washing of hands before a meal to a purification ritual wash for the unclean or immersion. But what is baptism? Baptism is a sign just like a wedding ring is a sign. A wedding ring is a sign to all who see it that I am married. Does wearing this ring make me married? If I take it off, am I now unmarried? No, it is a sign, a sign of a past event and present reality that whenever I see it, I can remember the wedding day and the vows and the commitment that I made to Loz. And on that day, we exchanged our rings. Well, not this ring, I lost my first ring and... I also lost this ring as well, and I got a third ring, but I found this one. Uh, um, Anyway, it doesn't matter. This ring is a sign that we have to remind us of the reality of our marriage. And in the same way, baptism is also a sign. Luckily, unlike rings that can be lost, we can never lose our baptism. We only need to do it once. But what exactly is it as a sign to? It can't be as a sign of the day we are saved. For many, salvation and baptism occur on separate days. Baptism is a sign of the new covenant that we have in Christ. God does like his signs, mostly because we're so quick to forget. We have the, ba- the rainbow is a sign of God's promise never to flood the world again. and Circumcision was a sign given to Abraham and his descendants of the old covenant, and that God had given them to bless him and his descendants. And you can read all about that in Genesis 17. Circumcision was the outward expression that you were either a descendant of Abraham, a Hebrew or an Israelite, or that you were adopted into the people of God. And what we see in Deuteronomy is that God wanted most, excuse me, wasn't a physical circumcision, but a circumcision of the heart. Deuteronomy 30 is when the people have just finished their 40 years wandering in the desert and they're about to enter the land uh, that was promised to them as part of the covenant with Abraham. And we see God is reminding the people of the covenant that he made and extending it. And God wanted more than the outward sign of the covenant, the circumcision of the foreskin. He wanted the inward transformation, the circumcision of the heart. Notice here that God doesn't ask or tell them to circumcise their own hearts, but that he would do it for them. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, that you may live. Later on, the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31, revealing some of the details about the new covenant God will make with his people, and he reiterates that it's not about the outward process um, uh, or external appearances, but that God cares about your heart and how he will act. Verse 33 of 31 says this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it in their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And so how will God achieve this new covenant? How will he put the law within us and forgive our sins? In the old covenant, forgiveness of sins was achieved through the sacrifice of animals. Not that the blood of sheep or goats could remove sin, but it was a sign. A sign of the future sacrifice of Jesus that was to come. God would see the heart of the people offering sacrifices and forgive them. You can read all about that in Hebrews, chapters 7 to 10. But what exactly is the sign of the baptism that points to? Colossians 2, 11 to 14 says this, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead and you who were dead, in your trespass and un- you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him having forgiven all of our trespass by the cancelling of the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands this he set aside nailing it to the cross. And so baptism is a sign of the new covenant. So whether you understand baptism to apply to infants or only those who are ready to confess in faith, in either case, the sign points to the atoning work of Jesus Christ. In one case, it's looking forward in hope and expectation for a child, like those under the old covenant offering sacrifices that couldn't directly forgive sins but looked forward in hope to the perfect sacrifice of Jesus and the other looking back at what Christ has already accomplished and in the life of the one professing faith. Christ died to pay the penalty for our sin so that we could receive forgiveness. And now we are dead to sin and united with Christ. And we remember that baptism is the sign that points to this event. As we said earlier, baptism cannot save us. We don't trust the sign, but the one to whom the sign points, to Jesus Christ. So yes, there are, the, the two baptisms are different. One points to a past event and present reality, while the other looks forward in hope. But the thing that they both look to is the same. They both look to Christ. Now here is something that we may disagree on, but the method doesn't matter. The method doesn't matter. There was a story recently of a Catholic priest from Arizona in the US, and for the last 20 years he was performing baptism wrong. During the baptism, he was saying the words, we baptise you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But he should have been saying, I baptise you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And as a result, the Vatican ruled that 20 years' worth of baptisms that he performed are invalid and need to be redone. I find this whole story just sad, that you can invalidate a baptism because of a word. But looking through the scriptural references of baptism... And the examples that we have, the Bible actually says very little about the details. There are no commands on the specific words to say, except for this from Matthew 28, 18, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's it. That's all the, the instructions. There are no instructions on how to perform the baptism. It does appear that the most common method was to go down to the river and to be immersed, but it is never commanded. And it is my belief that the lack of details here is not an omission or an oversight or a mistake, but is actually very deliberate. Looking at the ministry of Jesus, we have many records of Jesus' healing, and almost every time there is a different method. Sometimes he laid on his hands, other times he spoke, sometimes he sent them away to wash in the river. Sometimes people touched his clothes, and other times he healed from a great distance. Even if we look just at the healing of the blind recorded in Mark, in Mark 8.22, he spat and placed hands on him, and it took two goes, while later in Mark 10.51 and 52, he simply spoke, and the man was healed. Now, as I said, I believe that this diversity is very deliberate on Jesus' behalf. The Jewish people had very strict rules and rituals to be adhered to, but as we saw in Deuteronomy 30 that God is not interested so much in the outward actions and appearances, but on the nature of our heart. If Jesus always healed in the same way and commanded us to do the same, I believe that we'd be tempted to trust the action or the religious ritual and that the power was in performing correctly. But by having different procedures, it forces us to not trust ourselves, but to look to him. It is only through the power of the Holy Spirit that we can do anything. And so, bringing it back to baptism, I believe the lack of details on the specific action is to free us from religious ritual, and not to look to the correct procedure, but to look to Jesus, the one who has the power. And in the same way, there's also very little details about communion. And that's right, so Jesus gave us, his church, two ordinances, baptism and communion, and no clear, irrefutable methods or procedures on either. And I believe that is so that they wouldn't become religious rituals, that we would ascribe to them more power than Jesus himself, the one who gave them to us. And so we should be careful not to make these these events into rituals or traditions. We should be careful with everything that we do, that we don't simply do it because that's how we've always done it or how it's always been done, but instead looking to Christ. Christ. And so looking to the scriptures, we have no clear example of how to perform the baptisms. And so the specific details don't actually matter. Now, this doesn't mean that we can just, hey, anything goes. It doesn't really matter. We should do what we like. No, we should still strive to be serious and to honor God through the performing of the ordinances that Christ has given us and to do our best with the information that he has given us through his word. But what matters is our motives and our hearts are correct. The seeking of sound doctrine is a good thing. We should be, in God's word, seeking to understand him, not just as an intellectual pursuit, but to know the one who made us, to know the one who laid down his life for us to redeem us. The more we understand who God is and what he has done for us, the more we will praise him and give him glory that he rightly deserves. Now, in pursuit of knowing God and searching the scriptures in prayer, We permit both modes of baptism. And as I said, this isn't a lazy anything-goes. We don't endorse individual truth, where you have your truth and I have mine, and we're both right. No. There is one truth. But in our fallen state, sometimes we fail to accurately understand uh, the mind of God. Some will read the Bible, and in good faith reason an infant Baptist understanding of baptism. And giving weight... Uh, to um, the examples of household baptism in Acts, noting the circumcision and the sign of the Old Covenant was likewise applied to children. While others will read the Bible and in good faith reason a believer's Baptist understanding, giving weight to the epistles and associate baptism with faith and salvation. So so no, it is not that we are a progressive church that devalues doctrine and permits self-truth precisely the opposite. We are a regressive church. That is, we are always running back towards the words of Scripture. And it is because we hold the Scripture as the ultimate authority that we can have legitimate, Scripture-reasoned doctrinal differences. And these differences can be tolerated. Why? Because we also value the doctrine of unity in the body of Christ, and we seek to practice that in this fellowship. So I've talked a lot about theology of baptism and biblical foundation for different understandings. But I'm going to switch gear a little bit now and talk about the application, something that we can all enthusiastically take part in. We all, I hope, are 100% committed to the discipleship of the kids in this church. We started early by looking at Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And let us return there, but let's focus on verse 20. After the baptism we are commanded teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The Bible is very clear that we should be teaching our kids the commands of God. Deuteronomy 6, 4-7 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. And not only are we to be teaching our kids about the laws of God, but we'll also be talking about who God is and what he has done, how he has acted throughout history to bring a people to himself. Also from Deuteronomy 4, verse 9 to 10. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen. Unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and to your children's children how on the day that you stood before the Lord, your God, at Horeb. The Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children so. And so we are to teach our children the laws of God, but also to be teaching them about who God is and what he has done. And I think we need to be doing more than this. Solomon in the book of Proverbs 22 verse 6 offers this wisdom. Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old he will not depart of it. Now I don't believe that this passage is saying that if we train our kids the Bible that they're guaranteed to become followers of Christ, but I do believe that we should be training our kids. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 to 17 expands on what it means to be training. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Our training of our kids should include teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness in order that they may be equipped. And this is what we are called to do. And this is a hard and difficult work. As every parent will tell you, raising kids is super easy. (laughs) No. Shaping the lives of defiant, unrepentant sinners takes lots and lots of patience, endurance, and grace. We read with them, we guide them, we talk to them about God, we pray for them and with them, but we also correct them and train them in what it means to be a child of God, We model for them how we are to live in response of what he has done for us. Although they are not saved or born again yet, we still begin by showing them what it is like to be a follower of Jesus. And we train them in accordance to the standard that we ourselves are called to live by. Now hear me clearly, our training is not just morals. We are not training them to fake it until they make it. Pretending to be a good Christian without the heart is foolishness. We don't preach moralism... Be good and God might save you. This is completely unbiblical. What they need the most is the gospel, just as we need the gospel. And the gospel is this. The gospel is the good news that the kingdom of God has come near. That God is not far away and distant. We were unable to come to him, although he made us. We were unable to come to him because of our sin, A perfectly holy God cannot tolerate the sin within us. And nothing we can do can remove or atone for a bit of our sin. We were doomed in our sin, destined to be an object of God's wrath, as he would punish the sin within us. And this is the good news, that it doesn't have to be that way anymore. God himself made a way for us to be redeemed, to be forgiven. And for our sin to be removed completely, so that we can be made right with him, so that we can approach our creator and worship him. And the way that this is possible is through Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Jesus, the Son of God, perfect and blameless, left the glory of heaven and humbled himself. He became the lowest of man, a servant of all, and humbled himself to be crucified on a cross. The perfect God-man bore all the punishment of our sin, He placed on himself all the wrath that was coming our way. In his infinite grace and mercy for us, he lavishly poured out his blood to wash us and make us clean. And Christ was not defeated in death. Christ defeated death and rose again victorious. And as the victor, Jesus gave us his righteousness. So now when the Father looks upon us, he sees Jesus. We are now forgiven, redeemed saved, brought into the family of God. And this is the good news of the gospel. This is the good news. This is the most important thing that we can be teaching our kids. And teaching this is not just words and theory lessons. We teach this to our kids as we live out this reality and demonstrate what it means to be a follower of Jesus. As we live out our lives in gospel truth, our lives will be full of grace and love. Forgiveness and patience spilling over from all that we have received from Christ and so much more. And you know what? We're going to fail. We are going to fail our kids in so many ways. Instead of grace, we will demand. Instead of love, we will show apathy. Instead of forgiveness, we will demand retribution. Instead of patience, we will snap at them. And sometimes we'll do this all at the same time. And that's why we need the gospel. Every day, we need to be preaching to ourselves, to remind ourselves of what Christ has done for us, looking to Christ because we are not perfect. And you know what else? It's good for our kids to see that we're not perfect. It's good to see them that being a Christian doesn't mean we're suddenly perfect and without sin and without fault. It's a wonderful opportunity to display humbleness and to say sorry to our kids and to ask for forgiveness because our lives as Christians should be marked by constantly acknowledging our sin, asking for forgiveness. And the wonderful thing is this. No matter how much we stuff up, Christ has already forgiven us. Let's remember the words of Paul to the Romans in chapter 5. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person but perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood so much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more now if we were reconciled that we shall be saved by his life. More than that We also rejoice in God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in your doubt, as you struggle with the weighty task of training our children the ways of the Lord, remember your own baptism. And I don't simply mean remember the day or the words that were spoken, but remember the sign of what your baptism is pointing to. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you all must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We have been forgiven once and for all. And so the thing about the Christian life following Jesus is that it can often feel like we're walking backwards. The more time we spend with Jesus and in his word, listening to the Holy Spirit guide us and convict us, the more we see our sin, the more we see how clearly we we fall short of the standard that God demands, the more we realise what Christ achieved for us on the cross. And this is why we teach and train our kids. We are not to be content with teaching them feel good Bible stories or teaching them Bible trivia or how to be a good moral Christian. We train them so that they could recognise their sin and their need to be saved. And their need for Jesus to save them, and that if they call out to him, that he indeed will rescue them. And so, now a question, rhetorical Do you need to be baptized to train your kids? No. It doesn't matter if you baptize your kids, or you dedicate them, or neither. If you let your kids get baptized young, or you make them wait until they're a set age, it doesn't matter. You are to teach your kids, to train them, to live out the gospel to them so that they may understand and come to faith. I'm convinced that baptizing our young ones is the thing to do from scripture, but I'm also okay if you're convinced not to. The other elders, Steve and Alon, are not convinced to baptize infants. And I'm okay if I'm wrong in this matter. There's no clear answer from scriptures and I don't hold the view vital to salvation. If I'm wrong, God's grace is bigger than my sin. So whether you baptise your kids or dedicate them or neither, I don't mind. But I want you to, pra- to be preaching to your kids, to show them Jesus, to live out the gospel and being a display of God's grace to them, teaching them to walk in the ways of the Lord, teaching them to recognise their sin and to turn to Jesus. And this isn't some selfish family-first endeavour. Let's look after our descendants and make sure they're set up for eternity. This is not limited to our own flesh and blood, but to all kids. This is for everyone. So parents, yes, this message is for you. But also for those who are in kids' ministry, this message is for you. For those who work with kids, RE instructors, teachers, support staff in schools, this is for you. For those who interact with kids at all, our neighbours, our nieces, our nephews, your grandkids the kids we speak to before and after church, this message is for you. May our lives be so ingrained with the gospel truth that we are all involved in the building up our children for the Lord. And finally, to all parents and guardians and adults who have taught and prayed for your kids, biological or otherwise, remember that just as we cannot use baptism as a ritual to grant salvation, we do not grant salvation That comes from God alone. In the same way, we cannot control our kids' eternal future. If they end up in God's kingdom or not, that is not up to us. And it does not reflect on our ability or our passion or our steadfastness with God, but wholly upon him. Remember the grace that saved us and turn to Christ in prayer, knowing that he is the one who is in control. And now don't use this as an excuse to neglect teaching just because God can save by himself. Yes, God can save. He can move mountains to reach the lost. But God loves to use his people to accomplish his works. And what a privilege it is that he would allow us to be included in this precious work. We are to be faithful to what he has called us to do to teach the children. Now let me pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you and we acknowledge our total dependence upon you apart from you we can do no good thing and lord today we want to lift up our kids before you all of our kids lord we pray for their salvation that you would have mercy upon them and extend your grace towards them that you would rescue them and bring them into your family lord we pray for all the parents and teachers and adults who have kids in their lives Lord, we pray for them that they may not look to their own strength to save the children, but would look to you in your amazing love and mercy and recognize that it is you alone who saves. Lord, remind us all of what you accomplished on that cross and how you dealt with our sin once and for all and brought us into your loving arms and into your family. Amen. Now I want to say this again. If you disagree with anything I've said, if something I said doesn't sound right, if you think I'm wrong, uh, if you have any doubts, please come and talk to me. Uh, There's lots that I've touched on, but I couldn't go into a lot of detail. Um, If you have any questions or you want to discuss it further, please come and talk to me. Thank you. Um, And next week, for those who like to um, prepare, we'll be going back to James. uh, So it'll be James 5.